0: From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I'm Khalil Bendy. This week we speak with award-winning Iraqi poet and author Sinan Antoun about his novel The Corpse Washer. The book paints a vivid and heartbreaking portrait of Iraq confronting the war-torn nation's horrifying recent history. But first, we go to London to speak with Moroccan anthropologist and activist Miriam Awarag about the recent revival of anti-government protests in the Northern Reef region of Morocco's Mediterranean coast. Last October, protests erupted in Morocco's Reef region after a fish vendor named Mohsin Fikri was crushed to death by a garbage truck compactor as he tried to retrieve fish the police had taken from him and claim was caught illegally. The protests have continued through 2017 and have taken up many of the same demands made during the February 20th large-scale protest movement during the Arab Spring. Anthropologist Miriam Aurag has described the recent protest as the quote, the unfinished business of Moroccan Arab Spring activists, and some on social media I've been calling the latest wave of widespread demonstrations the new February 20th, referring to the movement of 2011. I spoke with Professor Aura about the legacy of resistance in Morocco and specifically in the Reef region, the epicenter of the current protests. Mariam, I'm from Algeria mm-hmm. and I grew up there and Algerians' perception of the Reef Mountains is one of greater kinship even than with the rest of Morocco, politically speaking. Mm. There's a proud history of armed resistance against colonialism, both Spanish and French colonialism in the Reef Mountains. Mm. Abdelkrim Khattabi especially stands out as a great hero of that resistance. Will you tell us briefly about this history of anti-colonial resistance, why it sprang up in the Reef instead of the rest of Morocco, and what relevance does it have in today's Morocco, if any?
1: Yeah, it's really great to hear about the historical connections also between uh, the different North African countries, because I think that is one of the many, I think, very interesting uh, archives and uh, oral histories that have been, that have lost and that have not been properly treated uh, as part of our uh, history. So I think it's really interesting that you ask that, particularly in terms of how The resistance movements in Algeria and uh, in Morocco, often you would exchange help and expertise and even literally go over the borders to join the different movements. I think it's beautiful, and I I hope this will come back, um, and we know why it doesn't, because as we probably will discuss later on, one of the ways, of course, to delegitimize the uh, very important uh, movements erupting now is to... uh, create this kind of suspicion that they are being sort of doing the dirty work for Algeria. So there's this agenda also in the sort of mainstream and hegemonic Moroccan reference to the political uprisings in relation to Algeria. So that's really an interesting reminder of why the very interesting part of our history where we have a proud legacy of anti-colonial resistance, which was intimately connected, I think, with the incredible history of Algeria uh, is lost. But it's not just lost in terms of what we know of the collaborations between Algerian and Moroccan anti-colonial fighters and movement. It's also lost in terms of what Moroccans know about their own anti-colonial history. So what we see now is that the people from the north are kind of bringing bit by bit this history back into the public discourse. So literally they bring it back by carrying posters and banners with Abdul Krim al-Khattabi who was one of the most iconic figures of this anti-colonial uh, struggle, which actually inspired you know, it wasn't just a Moroccan I think it's also important. It wasn't just a Moroccan experience, right? I mean yes, yes. I meet people in the Middle East when I do my fieldwork in Palestine or in Lebanon who ask me where I'm from and then I tell them and then I say I'm Azir and then I and then I ask, you know, Adil and most of the political people, activists, etc. know krim khatabi So his experience had reached very wide and had really inspired, I think, a lot of anti colonial movements. And why was that? I think it was partly because it was one of the early ones. I've tried to look into this very quickly, and then I found that actually, after the Russian Revolution, the Moroccan, North Moroccan experience was the main sort of revolutionary experience, and at the same time, the Mexican Revolution in 2021 as well. So we're talking about a very early experience as well in the kind of international or global history of revolutions and anti-colonial struggle. So what makes it so interesting for contemporary movements and politics is that a lot of people respond in kind of surprise or bit puzzled they can't really connect this very rich and and incredibly uh heavy legacy with the Moroccan they know. So there's this black hole. There's this black hole in the consciousness of uh, many, many Moroccan people about their own history. And what the people in the reef now are basically doing, maybe implicitly, is actually throw that back and you get bits and pieces of what actually happened in the 20s and and afterwards.
0: So it hasn't disappeared from the memory obviously in the reef mountains. And for for our listeners who are not uh, familiar Familiar with the geography, Morocco is obviously the neighbor to the west, uh, to Algeria. The northern part that we're talking about is the part of Morocco that's facing the Mediterranean as opposed to the rest rest of Morocco is facing the Atlantic. So those mountains are a lot like Algeria. They're facing the the Mediterranean. They're facing the colonial powers. (laughs) When you say the north of the reef mountains, that's the area we're talking about.
1: Yeah, I mean, the... Location has probably always played a role in the colonial and later machzen interests and emphasis in keeping control, right? It's geopolitically, It's if you look at the map, the and machzen, I don't know, the term, if, uh, you can provide that for your listeners, but it really is the tip it's the tip of the continent that basically flows over into Europe. So it's strategically and geopolitically, it's also a very important area, which is why during Spanish and French colonialism, there were a lot of internal struggles between the colonial powers to take control of particular strategic regions. So it's really interesting to think about how... Morocco has been basically colonized by different imperial powers and this has to do with of course the very important strategic benefits of the country as a whole because it's, as you said it's the west of, it's the most northwest of the continent and it's the most closest to Europe in a certain way and of course of the uh, incredible benefits in having a place country that is linked to two different oceans, the Atlantic and the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. So the The people in the reef, and I think, I don't know if you've been to uh, Europe or Southern Europe, but when I am in Southern Europe, I don't see that much difference. So when people describe the reef as the mountainous area, it's kind of, it has a bit of a romantic, old-fashioned description, but actually... It's very different. Uh, it's very similar to Andalusia. If you go to the southern yes, side of you don't uh, really Spain. feel a break
0: between northern Morocco and yeah. southern Spain.
1: <laughs> no, it's no, just exactly. A, a
0: brief interruption but and then same landscape. Yes, exactly, yes.
1: exactly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. but what is? I mean, I think it's really interesting. I mean, it's not the most important thing, but language in this sense also matters. Like when. When Moroccans or others talk about the mountainous area, uh, there is a kind of, as someone recently wrote, there is a kind of, it's very similar to the description of Kurds in Turkey. Mm -hmm. They are also described as the people from the mountains, the mountainous people. So there is a kind of, let's say, normative intention to also wreck this image of a people that are, in a way, very tribal or mountainous or... Primitive. Primitive, Um. backward, etc. So this is also, I mean, one of the reasons why I think there is also much less sort of understanding, or maybe a bit surprised about the Reef Uprising. Like, really? They are doing that thing that is so urban and so modern and so, if you know what I mean. But it's very important what you're saying, because, of course, the fact that it was a mountainous geography also meant that the leaders like Abdul al and other anti-colonial resistance leaders were really making use of their... Local intimacy with the land and the knowledge of the different mountainous areas, which was really an advantage militarily speaking. And I mean, some people would <laughs> even say that guerrilla warfare was actually invented. sort of invented, well, or, well, or sort of, you know, khatabi. the experience was yeah. mm-hmm. something that uh, was very important for the Moroccan battles against the Spanish. So I think I think that's a really interesting history that. Uh, Hopefully whenever some kind of concessions are going to be made by the government of Morocco would also include a different approach to history, to teach children in schools about this particular chapter in their very recent history.
0: So how is this legacy inspiring the protest movement today?
1: I've been doing field work in Morocco since two thousand and thirteen approximately, and I mean i've been doing field work there in order to understand what happens to a movement when it ceases to exist or when it starts to decline and this was about the twenty February movement, which is very important because we will not be able to understand what is going on today if we don't understand what happened in two thousand eleven and twelve right so mm. the Big mass movements that erupted as part of the, the regional uprisings that were referred to as the 20 February movements had a particular impact. One of the things I found out in talking with activists and just you know, observing the cultural expressions of demonstrations and activist uh, movements is these kind of historical um, references. So I thought that it was so interesting to see people wearing uh, necklaces with uh, the silhouette of Abdul Karim al-Khattabi. And I thought it was also really interesting to see some people you know, chanting at demonstrations, the typical uh, demonstration chants where you refer to a person and then you say, This person, and that could be anyone, a prisoner, someone, a martyr, where you basically say, uh, you just rest, we will continue the struggle. And sometimes they would mix that with Abdul-Krim al yeah. or Sa'id al or other characters from the recent history of people who have been part of a revolutionary movement. So I thought that it was really interesting to see that the moment that people go out and demonstrate and they come together and congregate and basically reconquer uh, public uh, spaces, it also becomes a moment where these signals from the past are sort of making themselves be heard again and I think it's something that is filled also with pride you know there's a lot of positive energy that comes from people hearing about these heroic experiences and and historic phenomena and I think it's sometimes a mixture of pride and surprise you know really did we are we part of that legacy and it's sort of allows also people to feel more confident. And I think what I tried to understand and when I wrote about my research was that it was, in a way, it gave them stamina. The current activists who sometimes look around, left, right, up, down, and think, what are we doing? Where are we going? The awareness of there having been this long history before them of people who've also struggled and done amazing things is, in a way, giving them the stamina to continue in the current time and what the difference between what is going on now in two thousand and seventeen and late two thousand and sixteen after the death of Martin Fikri is that what I signaled in 2013-14 in small pockets is happening on a large scale. So I think that is really interesting in terms of how the past and the sort of heroic history of the figure of abdul but also the experience of the people from the reef who've done things that were actually for the benefits eventually of the whole country are sort of coming back to haunt the current Political uh, leaders who are trying to repress these memories because they know that once these memories are unleashed, it kind of also gives an example to people that the most amazing things are possible. You know, and that is, I think, something that is not only typical to Morocco. You see this uh, in in Greece. You see this in the U. S. with all the movements against Trump. The minute people understand that actually big change is possible once you unite and fight, because people have done it before you, then it becomes to be a, a, a worry, a source of a worry for the ruling elites and, and class. And I think that Morocco at the moment is completely confused and not in tune with what is going on. And they can see that the past is haunting them. And it's not just the al and the heroic stories, by the way. It's also the sad experiences, and the losses, and the experience of extreme, you know, violence that have occurred particularly in the Reef region under first crown prince and then King Hassan II. These experiences that are sort of very particular for al-Husayma and the Reef at large, have also been blacked out, have also been so erased.
0: Maybe you can focus on the actual incident uh, yeah. of, of a few weeks or months, a couple of months ago, I think, where Mr. Fickety, uh, what yeah. happened to him, and how does this tie into this this history of neocolonialism, repression,
1: yeah. etc.? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a combination of factors. There is, of course a new, a different social context. So people communicate in different ways, right? So I think that is very important to acknowledge that the way people share information and the way certain things go viral in a certain way matters. Add to that the fact that you have also a new generation.
0: But if you would please summarize for us exactly what happened for our listeners. This strong parallel of this story with what happened in Tunisia in 2011, the the incident that provoked...
1: Startups. Right. So, we, so these different factors matter in how, for instance, the events or tragedy in October was experienced. The tragedy in October, which wasn't actually a tragedy, is that one particular person, Mohsin Fikri, who had just gotten his fish uh, to go and sell off, was basically stopped by a policeman who wanted to, be, to get his usual bribe in order to let him go and that led to disagreement and a lot of people know the story but he was ev- eventually killed and the symbolic way he was uh, killed matter in the sense that he was killed in a garbage
0: truck. Yeah, so they repossessed his fish and they threw it in the garbage and he tried to Recover it, and that's how he got crushed. Right, by, so he, he,
1: I mean, it didn't really compactor. exactly happen that way. I mean, they didn't throw his fish in the garbage, but they took his fish, and him and his com- comrades went into the garbage truck and said, We will, this was kind of like a sit in, like a strike, we will not leave until you give us back oh, our okay. uh, fish. Yeah. Two of his uh, comrades uh, got out. Of the garbage truck, and the Mohsin stayed behind, and the police officer allegedly ordered the grinding machine to be activated, Mm -hmm. which grinded Mohsin Fikri. So the event was, of course, terrible, and there were a lot of parallels with Boazizi. That something, an individual person who's just trying to make a living, who is not even allowed dignity in the sense of surviving and not even the dignity to die in the way that he died. Uh, But that experience happened in a time when this goes viral in a matter of minutes or hours. And it happens in a time when people are already on the verge, they are already fed up They have had, as you started discussion with, decades, in a sense, of experience of being neglected and humiliated. Very recent experiences since 2011, in which a new generation of activists had been very actively involved in the protests only four or five years before. So there was an accumulation of both anger and frustration and experience and understanding how politics works. And I think that combination has ignited a different type of political resistance that has managed to continue for more than seven months. And this is unique. This is phenomenal, because in Morocco, as probably in other countries as well, what you often would see is that anger and protest movements are easily, or at least attempted to be co-opted. Co-opted either by, you know, doing false promises, giving them all kinds of new deals, or divide and rule, which is one strategy of political control that I think Morocco uh, is extremely well-versed in. But that did not succeed. And until now, what we see is that the movements have only grown and increased and gone way beyond the reef. This is the point we're at now.
0: Give us a summary of what happened during or after the, the start of the Arab Spring in Morocco, all the protests. How did that end up and how was that co-opted or attenuated that six years later we're still a square one?
1: Well, we are not at square one. That's the whole point. Mm -hmm. That's, I think, what we have to really understand. We would not have seen this. I think it's a huge success, what is happening now. If there had not been the experience of 2011. First of all, of course, just the experience of going out. And I think it sounds for a lot of people a blasé, but it really is important to understand what it means for people to congregate publicly and chant. I mean, it's a cliche now, but a lot of people would say, we lost our fear. That happened in 2011, and Mm -hmm. that is something that is very hard to put back. And we've seen that in several countries, of course. So for a lot of people in Morocco, 2011 was crucial in the sense that it taught them that they could go out and express their grievances. So this is not any more unique or new or innovative. What Uh, kind of concessions
0: did they gain by doing all the protests? Tell us a little bit how the Moroccan government, which you're saying is very clever, how it managed to channel all that energy into something more palatable.
1: Yes, it's both, right? It's not only that it was co-opted. On the one hand, the government very clearly understood that they were part of a regional change. It was not just in Morocco. So they had the benefit, you could say, of seeing how things were evolving elsewhere, so they could see what not to do and what maybe to do better. So what they did was, of course, try to co-opt with promises for uh, a better democratic system. This in Morocco manifested itself in the very, very quick announcement of a referendum. The king gave a speech in which he kind of, in his own way, try to do a better form of what Ben Ali did too late in Tunisia. when he said, I understand you. I hear you. So what basically the king of Morocco did was in his so-called king's speech, he said, I acknowledge your grievances and I'm going to do something extraordinary, which I never did before. And that is give you actually a right to vote on changing the constitution and democratize the country from within. And of course, this for a lot of activists it didn 't matter. They continued to mobilize and to say that this was something we should not take too serious that we should push forward. But for a lot of people who were mobilized on the streets and who were not that keen on a kind of you know radical political push uh, without any guarantees, these offers were actually accepted. And so, despite the fact that the media manipulated the debates and there was no actual honest debates about a yes or no in the referendum, it was a sort of fait accompli, a lot of people actually did think that we should give it a chance. This is exactly what the Mahzan wanted, what the state wanted. It was to take out that energy from the movement. And it's understood that if you do that at a height, of a movement that you actually have lasting effect. So this was the first step. The second step was the elections. One of the side effects of that was that a major party, a major actor in the grassroots movements Adil Wal ihsan the sort of uh, what Justice, people call Islamist, yeah, yes. political Islam, was at that time also withdrawing itself from the movement, the movement that was called the 20 February Movement. Some people said that this was in order to make space for the new PGD party, which is also described as a kind of Islamist party, to join the elections. It was for the first time that the government, the king, allowed this Islamist-oriented party, to join the elections. So it kind of killed two births with one stone. It sort of weakened the movement, because it led to the withdrawal of a major part of that movement, and it diverted a lot of attention and energy into the elections. So this happened in 2011 and into 2012.
0: So at this the was the time, the divide-and-conquer uh, tactics that you were talking about. But at the about.
1: same time, there were still protests, and I think that is really something that we should not underestimate. At the same time, there were still monthly protests. People were still going out in the streets, not in those huge masses, but at the same time, the political discontent was still continuing, and there were translated into different campaigns, even if they were not called anymore the 20 February movement, in 2012 and 2013, there were mass protests, there were mass sittings. but they were around concrete demands that came out of the same grievances of the movement. And that has been a nonstop lifeline. And I think a lot of people don't see that when they only focus on mass movements, they don't see that this lifeline has continued also in Morocco up until 2016. So what we see now is a combination of the old networks, of all of that that erupted in 2011 around what they call the Arab Spring or the Arab Uprisings and the 20 February movement, of people who already knew each other and who trusted each other and who had the experience of doing campaigning via social media, via street sittings, et those experiences have accumulated and are now also being expressed in the street. So that's why I'm so keen on making that link between 2011 and now. I don't think it's something that was failed and now there's a second chance.
0: So it was not entirely co-opted. We have two threads. We have this continuing resistance.
1: The fact that they already tried the co-optation means that they can't try it now in the same way. You see what I mean? Yes. They've tried it.
0: What Hmm. did they manage to accomplish by letting this moderate Islamist party, the PJD, Party of Justice and Development, accede to power? They had a coalition government, and they've been in power. Did anything change in Morocco? Well,
1: that's the thing. Some political scientists would probably tell us, If you let the opposition govern, you kind of get a kind of stability, and then you will get a new status quo. But what we've seen is that the opposition was actually not governing. It was a kind of shadow cabinet. A lot of people were joking about the fact that for every minister, for the opposition, there was a shadow minister that was appointed directly by the king. I mean, there's one story whereby the American, uh, was a delegation, uh, Clinton, I think, herself came to Morocco. And the first person she met was not the official minister, but the shadow minister appointed by the king. I mean, this is just an anecdote to show that, in effect, the democratic experience that was part of this cooptation, they didn't even... Try that hard to play it out as convincing as possible. But that experience has shown that change does not come from within, that as long as the system remains the way it is, the forces of power are unchanged. The rule of law is unchanged. In fact, a lot of people actually witnessed and experienced with shock that some of the changes that came after the experience of the Arab uprising and the twenty February movement will regress. Some of the rights and laws actually became worse than they were before. So that whole experience, I think, is very interesting because it shows that when another moment happens, at least later, the government is out of its options. The tricks are all used and so now they tried to co-opt by sending officials to al Husseima to talk with the people. No one cared. They were basically booed out of the city. And this is really interesting.
0: So behind the window dressing of a new government, uh, new faces, a new prime minister, not much that was fundamental seems to have changed. Was there any talk or pretense of trying to fix some of the fundamental issues of social justice in Morocco at the hands of this purported new government?
1: Yes, there's always been talk. There's no lack of talk. And there are... For instance, also a lot of hard numbers. There would be those who would come out with economic reports and say that the GDP went up, which is true. But the problem is it went up in tandem with an increase in property. So what we saw was that actually the inequality has increased. Mm. So even though the infrastructure in this place or the new sector in that place have materialized that actually it is not in the benefit of ordinary people. And I think that is very important to understand why people in the reef are making these very concrete claims. So they've also learned, I think, from the recent years to not be abstract in your demands because then the government can co-opt and come with kind of camouflage and cosmetics. But they come with very concrete demands, such as We want a hospital. We want a university. Mm. We want the roads to be fixed. And I think this is extremely smart and wise because it doesn't allow then the political class to buy them off with all kinds of void and empty discourse. But either yes, you do it or no, you don't then we will continue to resist. So that's kind of the limbo the Moroccan government and the makhzen is finding itself in at the moment.
0: After the death of Hassan II, the previous king, mm. in 1999, there was a lot of excitement about mm. his son, the new king, Mohammed VI, at least paying lip service, if not more than that, to all kinds of social progress among those, the status of women. they came up with a famous family code called the Mudawwana that really Mm. was trying to advance things. What have we seen, if anything, in terms of progress for women's rights?
1: I think that's really interesting because we should take this serious. I mean, I know that at moments of cynicism, we can say, oh, it was all fake, it didn't mean anything. But actually, it was meaningful. I think the late 1990s was a period, uh, the King Hassan Tani died in 1999. Just before that, they had already established these changes. They knew that there was a new era coming up, and that the way that the King the Hassan Tani was leading the country was inevitably going to lead to crisis. So there was already this awareness, which also was, by the way, happening across the world after the Cold War. There was a new understanding of a sort of neoliberal democracy type approach, even among dictatorships. We saw this also in Syria in other countries in Jordan, who all, by the way, saw new kings and new presidents, right? It was sort of the same period. Yes, Abdullah yes. in mm. Jordan, Hassan Tani in Morocco, uh, Hafez al-Assad in Syria. So it was the period also of Important new sort of investments, ICT sector, media sector, and also things like women's rights. But what we should not forget is that in Morocco there has been a long history of grassroots organizing and civil society around different rights, including women's rights. So actually, My view is that these different confluences came together. They actually provided also a ready-made need, demand for change, at the moment when it was really necessary for the state to change its attire, so to speak, to introduce to the world a modern country with a modern young king. And this is indeed what happened. He was hailed as the cool king. I don't know if you've ever seen the cover of the Times Magazine. It was the cover with the new king, and the title was The Cool King. So with every story about the new monarch we would hear stories about women's rights and mudawana. And I think it doesn't do justice to a lot of the women who have been fighting for these rights to take women's position out of the Sharia law and in. To the main legal framework, because the family law is the only part of the law that is under the Sharia law. So the whole point about the Mundawa now was to actually, basically to put it very crudely, secularize that part of the legal system. So it was in a way beneficial for the regime to have a new image around liberal modern topics, but it was also something that was already being fought for by the same women who, by the way, who fought for these issues, who only a few years before that were harassed or imprisoned over the same issues. So yes, some important changes were taking place also in the media sector. Journalists who were experimenting really fascinating uh, experiences. This is the period, by the way, that produced journalists like Ali Nuzla that led to experiments with magazines like Telkel like yes. Lakoum later. This was that period of potentiality, yes. but that didn't last. It didn't last long for different reasons, but also it wasn't enough. At some point, people were going to say, okay, Symbolism is good, but it's actually not enough. We want real change. We have a very rotten system from very deep within that produces inequality and that harms us, and that needs to be fixed.
0: So what concrete measures have we seen since 1999 that have improved the lot of women in Morocco?
1: I mean, of course, it's a very slow process for everyone who has family or maybe even herself experienced legally speaking officially speaking there have been improvements for instance in the right to divorce or that the polygamy has been restrained but we know that there is a enormous informal Inertia, dynamic.
0: Inertia and resistance to it. Yeah,
1: yeah and it's not just the resistance. But it, I mean, on the local level, the Qa'id or the, the local sort of judge or whatever, it has a lot of power. So, I mean, you can, as a woman, say that the law is on my side, but there are all these different dynamics and power struggles on different levels that the state has almost nothing to do with that continues. But, I mean, there has been progress. The only thing I want to say is, I don't think this progress has come because of the state. I really think it has largely come despite of the state.
0: Mm. But how about uh, the rights of the Amazir people to mm. speak their own language, mm. to have their language recognized as a national language? Morocco, just like Algeria, perhaps even more so, probably has a majority of, or a very, very large minority of Berber speakers. In Algeria, we no longer like to say Berber versus Arab. It's really Arab speakers versus (laughs) Berber speakers, Mm. a lot of people speak both. What kind of uh, progress has been made on that
1: front? really interesting because what... So the Mudawana is one topic or label you can uh, hear a lot. The other is the rights of the Imazigham and that the new king has acknowledged their rights and respected them and not criminalized anymore, Amazigh cultural language. So on the one hand, that's true. On the other hand, we, we we know... 20 years later, I realized, actually, it doesn't really matter. What we've seen is that there are news programs added to the existing news programs in Arabic in three Amazigh languages, But they say the same state propaganda. And that's the joke, right? Right. So, I mean, when I'm in Morocco, I'm listening to the news, and it's like, oh, wow, it's in and But it's the same news about the king meeting this ambassador, going that place, doing this. So I think we've also come to a point where all these kind of minority issues and rights that are sort of cosmetic, but also very on the level of politics of representation, don't feel People's bellies. They don't actually bring concrete change. And what we see now is that the recent protests are showing that in the most extravagant way. I mean, the beating up of protesters and then using the most racist terms against Imazeran, showing the real face of the state, but also the very recent example, which is, I think, extremely symbolic is a mother of one of the prisoners who went to visit her son, who was arrested, basically kidnapped and put into this one of those notorious prisons in uh, Casablanca called Arkasha. She was not allowed to talk with her child in Temeleot. People are only allowed to talk in Arabic to the prisoners. So it just tells you something about the extent That's of or rather the mm. difference mm. between symbolic politics and mm. actual politics based on justice. So a lot of these grievances about the discrimination and racism against Imaziren are coming to the surface, and a lot of Moroccans don't understand it. I think they genuinely think, you had your rights, what's the problem? We had a new king, and you're wealthy, what's your problem? I think the recent weeks have actually also, people have been held a mirror in front of them to say, well, actually, no, this is actually what is happening in terms of our Imaziran. And they are not minority, as you said. Yeah, I mean, if <laughs> anything, they're
0: probably the majority. When you count this region plus that region plus this mountain, You know, yeah, we, probably we don't, the, don't
1: know. We don't know. We don't, we don't know, know because... Happened, yeah. What does it matter? if There would be some DNA uh, test, probably. Right, there's no such are thing are anymore. We mixed slave. We don't it's know. It's a it linguistic
0: issue. And to bring back the discussion uh, to what we started talking about, the Reef Mountains happen to be a Berber in Maziran region. That's also very symbolic that these people who have a legacy of resistance have also traditionally been at the bottom of society, the mountain people, and they speak their own language, which is Tamazight.
1: Yes. Mm. But, you know, my origin is from there. We all tend to sort of bend the stick the other way. So when people tell me about all these things, about Amazigh and we Tamazir, I tend to actually then shift gear and say, but, you know... In the south, we also have Imazirans. They are the Shluch. They also live in mountainous areas. Those are the Atlas Mountains. They've also fought very brave struggles in the here and now. They are actually economically, I think, even worse off than the north. And the whole intention of the protests now is to connect these different regions and people and to say that what is happening in the reef is basically symbolic for what is happening in the whole country. And we can all be heroes. We can be tomorrow Abdelkrim al It doesn't have to come from the north. It can also come from the south of Rukhaza or from Rabat. And I think that's the moment we are in now. We're seeing al-Husayma and the reef becoming symptomatic, I think, for the country in terms of its suffering, but also a metaphor in terms of its resisting.
0: Mary Mawrach is a fellow at the Communications and Media Research Institute at Westminster University in London. She is writing a book about the protest movement in Morocco. We spoke with her from London. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices in the Middle East and North Africa. Coming up next, celebrated Iraqi author and poet Sinan Antoun talks about his novel, The Corpse Washer.
2: of Iraq has been reduced to daily reports of bombings and carnage. Seeking to explore the emotions of those still alive, Iraqi-born novelist Sinan Antoun writes about the accumulated tragedy of loss in his novel, The Corpse Washer. The protagonist, Jawad, is pressured by his father, a corpse washer, to take over the family job when he's gone. But Jawad has different plans for his life. He wants to become an artist, a sculptor. But growing up during the Iran-Iraq War of the 80s and the invasion of Kuwait in the 90s, he's exhausted by death, wishes to shape his future in other ways. But his future does not pan out as he wishes. I asked Sinan Antoun what inspired him to write his novel, The Corpse Washer.
3: Back in 2004, and this story in the New York Times caught my attention. It was about a corpse washer, who had inherited the profession from his family, and he was in his early 30s, and he'd been making so much money because there were so many corpses now after the occupation and the sectarian violence, but he was planning to leave the country because he did not want his son to carry on the same profession. So it was just a very powerful story, and to my mind, it encapsulated all of the horror of the situation in Iraq And I kind of knew I had a gut feeling right then that this is going to be... I was writing another novel, but I abandoned that one and started basically researching more about this whole profession and its history and its rituals. And it seemed to me to be the nucleus of a novel about Iraq.
2: Your novel is about a father who's a corpse washer, and he wants his son to take over the business after he's gone. And we'll get to exactly what Javad, who's the protagonist of your novel, goes through and and contradictions and ebbs and flows of his life. How did you manage to write in such details about corpse washing process or ceremony and the mortuary itself?
3: Yes, well, I was just fascinated by the profession itself. And then once I started to read more about it, And I read all these interviews with the Corpse Washers, but also, you know, um, consulted books of Islamic law, which detail everything. And I should say that I was also, I always have this fear that having left Iraq a long time ago, that I want to represent, not that this is a documentary novel, but I want to live. And internalize the characters that I'm writing about. And so I did a lot of reading and did a lot of research, and there is a lot written about it. And there were a number of interviews with the men and women who do this job, and that kind of helped me feel at home in the profession itself almost. And I sometimes jokingly say, if I lose my job, I can almost know how to do this job, even though I've never seen it before my eyes, but there are even recordings on YouTube and so on and so forth.
2: Did you ever think of visiting one?
3: Well, I contacted an Iraqi religious establishment in in New York and told them I was writing something and researching, but, but they never responded. But ultimately, I mean, it would have been great to be able to see it firsthand, but... The amazing thing about all of these, uh, the literature, even the Islamic law literature, is that it's very detailed and deals with the most intricate details are all recorded. So I thought that was enough considering where I was. I mean, if I were in Iraq, of course, I would go or, or living in any other country. But I'm living in New York.
2: Mm. You said this is you studied religious and Islamic uh, laws and the rituals. This is focused on a Shiite ritual of washing corpses. Why did you focus on Shiites?
3: When I first read the news, the story was about someone who was working in Najaf, the holy Mm. city, where most or the great majority of, of Shiites are buried, but... I wanted my protagonist to be in Baghdad, because Baghdad is the city I know so well, and then I would be able to deal with the occupation and everything that happened in Baghdad. But then I kept imagining and already did some research, and it just so happened that the books that I got out were on Shia Islamic law, and so it it wasn't intentional. And you know, there aren't that many major differences between the Shiite rituals and the Sunni rituals, except in some details and mentioning the names of imams. But also because of all of the complexities. I mean, later I thought it was the right choice because all of the political developments in Iraq and in Iran and there is a demonization of, of Shiites in mainstream Arab political discourse and elsewhere. So not that this is, was one of my intentions, but I thought a to humanize a a Shiite character who happens to be a Shiite and who's born into a Shiite family, and to show the other side of the lives of millions of people who are not necessarily or should not be linked to political militias and political parties that claim to speak for all Shiites.
2: So let's talk about Jabot, who is the main character and the narrator of the novel. His father wants him to take over the business from him. He takes Jabot to the morgue to watch and learn the process. But he really does not want to walk in his father's footsteps. He doesn't want to take over the business. What was your main character, Javot, inspired by?
3: Well, I mean, this is, in a way, I hate to use the word universal, but this is the typical kind of conflict, generational conflict, Mm -hmm. between a son or a daughter who, you know, want to go their own way. So initially, he's fascinated by this world because he holds his father in high esteem, and he kind of knows, even though he doesn't know a lot of the details, that what his father does is something important. But then he has a tendency for art and for drawing, and he fancies himself as someone who will become an artist, and especially when he learns how to draw in school, and he's you know inspired by his arts teacher. And then when he, as a teenager, goes into the... Morgue itself, he doesn't like the the horror of death and doesn't like the idea of dealing with, with corpses. And in his mind, he wants to deal with life and with reproducing life rather than tending to death. Mm-hmm. But of course, for the father, it's a matter of honor and continuing the family tradition. So that is the beginning of the rift between the two. And it will take Jawad many, many years to kind of come to an understanding of the importance of this, these rituals for people, even though he might not share the religious belief or the faith, but even as a secular person, he comes to the understanding that these rituals are important because they kind of punctuate life and also guard this border between life and death, which is very difficult to comprehend.
2: But at the same time, this is a tale of what Iraq has gone through for the past three decades or so, because through Jawad, we get to learn about what people went through during Iran-Iraq war and then what happens during the invasion of Kuwait and the sanctions and the early days of of the invasion of Iraq. In the beginning, Jawad says In one of his sessions with his father, he says, I was astonished by father's ability to return to the normal rhythm of life so easily each time after he washed, as if nothing had happened, as if he were merely moving from one room to another and leaving death behind, as if death has exited with a coffin and proceeded to the cemetery and life had returned to this place. This is Javad when he's a young man, a kid. His relationship with that place and with death completely changes as he goes through different periods of his life. In the beginning, he doesn't understand how one can live with death Yes, But as time passes by, he's forced to live with death.
3: Yes, I mean, in a way, I'm, I've always been haunted by this question in general, but particularly in Iraq or in other countries where the weight of history and the successive tragedies of wars and conflicts become almost unbearable, yet human beings, of course, have to somehow muster the courage and the stamina to, to keep going on. And that's one thing that I wanted to focus on whereby there is no escape and one has to deal with death and even on a daily basis. And although the situation is, is really abnormal and horrific, human beings have to somehow make it normal. And it's in a way, it's a catastrophe at the same time, but it's one of the, you know, the ways of coping and resisting. And that's why the profession, well, that's why the story attracted me because also through it one could see because in a way we all have amnesia or we all kind of have selective memory and try to forget but for Jawad in his profession he cannot forget and he sees the the effects of war and of destruction every day but also through his own life through the trajectory of his own life we in a way get to see the destruction of Iraqi society in the last 35 40 years mm-hmm not only by you know external powers of course but by internal powers and by dictatorship so through him i wanted to show the combined effects of dictatorship and of the erosion of society and also how to me he represents the millions of talented and aspiring and hard working human beings for whom it just does not work out there is a ceiling there is a structural ceiling that they cannot transcend no matter how good or hardworking they are. And that's the tragedy of of millions of people on this planet. And Jawad is just one of them.
2: Yeah, because he can never divorce himself from that place. No,
3: because the attachments to his mother and he resists for so long and he studies art and he tries to become an artist. But because of the political context, you know, the sanctions and the the erosion of the economy in Iraq he cannot make it as an artist and he's forced to take menial jobs and then with this last war and invasion he that's the tragedy that he is forced to do the very same profession that he tried so hard to escape so it's not about fate in a way and there is a, a place in the novel where where he himself talks about people call it fate but it's also about how catastrophic history can be for on a collective level, but also on an individual level.
2: Sinan, does this story, does Jawad, in some ways, parallel your life growing up in Iraq and living through Iran-Iraq War and then the invasion of Kuwait?
3: Even though I left, but in a way all Iraqis of my generation witnessed all of this. So there is one scene in the novel where, you know, Jawad's brother is killed because he was a soldier. In the war with Iran, and you know this—the scene of a of a taxi coming home with a with a coffin on top, covered with a flag—that's the the event that so many families feared, and this even so everyone was moved by this because it brought back memories and it brought back all these long years of having to deal with death. So, definitely, in that aspect, I like many others lived what Jawad lived through—that our Lives were marked by war from the age of 11. When we were 11 or 12, uh, the war started with Iran and went on for eight years. And then after three years, there was the invasion of Kuwait and all of that. And there is no escaping how these events marked our lives and how they affected our history. And I sometimes think that had I not been lucky enough to have left in 91, you know, I would have had, had to deal with, in different ways with this catastrophe of, of staying inside and being in a place where as an artist or a writer one could not express themselves freely or one could not even pursue their their dreams of being an artist or a writer because the, the reality is so severe.
2: Sinan Antoun is an Iraqi poet, novelist, scholar and an associate professor at the Gallatin School of Individualized Study at New York University. The Corpse Washer is his second novel. To listen to this interview in its entirety, please visit jadmagazine.com. From Pacifico Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.
0: And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
2: To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.